Welcome to Living Free Today, a ministry of Cornerstone Fellowship in San Lorenzo, California. These podcasts are the weekly sermons of Dr. Michael L. Wilson. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 2. We are moving from the parables of Jesus into the miracles of Jesus, and I will do my best to do them in the order they were performed. On this particular miracle, we get a little hint because it says in the end of this passage, that this was his first miracle. So we know that, so we don't have to do any digging. So it is famously the uh, first miracle of Jesus, and it is turning water into wine. Now, today there are all manner of people who deny the miracles, who say there is no supernatural in the Bible, that that was an invention. Uh, And that is incorrect. If you believe that Jesus did no miracles, then you don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. And if you don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible, you have no salvation. And so we can ask the question then, why did Jesus do these miracles? John says at the end of his book that if John had written down everything that Jesus did and said... The world could not hold those volumes. So Jesus was doing miracles and teaching all the time, many times every day. And only the high points, if you will, are recorded in Scripture to give us a picture of who Jesus is enough to be saved by his work. And so why did Jesus do the miracles? Jesus was not a showman. Jesus did not come to entertain. Jesus did not come and say, hey, look at me and do this trick. He didn't do it out of self-aggrandizement. He didn't do it so that people would uh, think of him as a really, really neat person, a really, really exciting person to be around because he did these various tricks. He didn't do them to show up the enemies. When he was going against people like the Pharisees who wanted to kill him, He could have called fire down from heaven, just boom, miracle, they're dead. He didn't do it. He didn't use his miracles as a weapon. Every time he did a miracle, it was to prove that he is God incarnate, that he is who he said he is, that he is the Son of God, that he is Messiah, that he is the way of salvation for the Jewish people and now the Gentile people. And every time he did a miracle, he did meet a need of sinful and broken humanity. So there is a sense that he waited until there was a need to do a miracle. He didn't just wake up in the morning and start doing tricks. If you look at the world today, they will call these sorts of things tricks. We have magicians today. We have people who say they have real, you know, power to read minds. And then there's other people who say, nah, it's just a trick. And they're very good at it. And there's various shows on TV that have magicians on them doing things. And you look at that and you go, huh, boy, how do they do that, you know? David Copperfield made the Statue of Liberty disappear. 
but I assure you it's still there in New York. He walked, he walked through the, uh, the Great Wall of China. He does things like this, but he is willing to admit that it is a trick, that you don't know how it's done, but it is a trick. When Jesus does these miracles, it is not a trick. It is a sign of his divinity. Now, if you go back to the book of Exodus and you have Moses going against Pharaoh, you have the two uh, magicians of the Pharaoh who is able to replicate the things that Moses did for at least the first few plagues. And we know their there's Bible trivia. We know their names are Janus and Jambres. We know that in the New Testament. And so they were able to, and the Bible says through dark arts. And when you talk about dark arts, you're talking about demonic, satanic powers. Satan can work in people's lives to make them do and allow them to do somewhat supernatural things and to amaze people. And if you read through Revelation, the deception of Satan is going to be so strong on the earth of the, the uh, Antichrist and the false prophet doing great miraculous works that if it were allowed to continue, it says, then even the elect would be deceived. So the deception is going to be so complete and so pr amazingly profound that even Christians are going to begin to, huh, I don't know what's going on. Oh, maybe that's, you know. And, we're, and there's going to be the opportunity for those who believe in Jesus Christ to follow after the uh, Antichrist. But the Bible says God will cut it short before that happens, we will be saved from the great deception, but those who do not believe in Jesus will buy it hook, line, and seeker, and they will say miraculous things have been happening, but it will not be from God. And so what is the miracle? The miracle is very simple. Jesus is invited to a wedding. They run out of wine. He asks the people to do some things, and he turns a bunch of water into a bunch of wine, and people are amazed. That is the basic miracle. It is impossible to replicate today, uh, but people can, you know, poo-poo it, say, ah, there was, it wasn't really wine, it was a delusion or something. But no, it was really wine. And so let's look at the passage and see what the passage says. The passage starts, John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, on the third day after what? You have to go back to chapter 1. Jesus is calling his disciples, and he just calls Philip and Nathaniel in chapter 1 as his disciples, and three days later, okay, it's what this is saying, after he picked those two as his disciples, there was this wedding. It is in Cana of Galilee. If you read chapter 1, where Nathanael is called to be a disciple, he is from Cana of Galilee. So Jesus is in that area. He is picking disciples. He is teaching. And there's a wedding. And it says, the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding. Now, if you recall, we've talked about how relationships back in the time of Jesus back even in the Old Testament, were with Jewish people. 
They were arranged marriages back in Jesus' day. There would be a father of a family who would be friends with a father of another family. One of them had a daughter, one of them had a son, and they felt that there would be good benefits for the family if these two families were joined by these two kids getting married. And so a wedding would start by the parents of the two kids actually writing a contract between the two families of what it would be like if there was any business relationship, if a business had to be uh, merged, if money had to be shared. These sorts of things were written down in a contract and all four parents signed it. And then the kids were probably notified after that. Now they probably knew that things were going on. And then the kids would have a betrothal ceremony. They would vow fidelity to each other. And they would say, we are getting betrothed. At that point in time, they were, as we might say today, married. Although they were not living together and they did not consummate the marriage, they were exclusive at that point. Okay, they were going steady in a really big legal way. And that betrothal could last months. If there was difficulties in the family that had to be worked out, it could last a year or more. And then on the day of the wedding, the bridegroom would take his entourage and they would, uh, with, with torches and bands and la-di-da and pomp and circumstance, march from his house to the house of the bride, collect the bride and the bridesmaids, and they would all, with singing and la-di-da, go back to his house, and it would start an eight-day celebration. It would start an eight-day celebration, which in the middle, about five days in, actually, they would have the wedding. And then, so up to that point, they would be celebrating the wedding that is to come, then they would have the wedding. A rabbi would come to the groom's house and do the wedding there. And then they would celebrate for another couple days the wedding afterwards. And so this is a thing that is long and it's celebratory. And you wonder, well, why did they do it? Why did they have such a big thing for weddings? And the answer kind of comes down to Romans. Romans were in charge. They were an occupied people, the Jewish people in Jerusalem and Galilee and Cana of Galilee. There were Roman soldiers roaming the streets. They were an occupied country. And the Romans occupied countries and took over countries for the purpose of taxing them and funding Rome. And so work and the markets and how many kids you had, and anything that had to do with your finances was controlled and monitored by the Romans. And the one thing they didn't touch, apparently, according to everybody who wrote about that time, was weddings. And so they did up big on the weddings because the Romans could care less how the Jews married and how the Jews celebrated because it didn't seem to be a financial thing for them. And so they did it, and it was big, and it was eight days. Mary says was there, which means that she was somehow related 
to the wedding party. We do not know if it was a brother or sister was involved or how she was there, but if you were there and you were apparently in charge of the food, which Mary seems to be in this passage, you had to be related to the people. They just didn't put a sign out saying, anybody come and help with the wedding. We've had big, big weddings here, and you have to be uh, related to the family or a cousin or yeah, at least a very good friend to, to be involved in the food preparation and the decorations. You had to be in the in crowd, and so Mary's in on the in crowd. She is automatically there. She has authority. She has authority that has to do with the food. Perhaps she was in charge of the catering or the head cook. We do not know the extent of that. And then it says Jesus was invited. Now, Jesus could have been invited by Mary. It's legal because if Mary's related to the wedding party, then Jesus is related to the wedding party. He can come to the wedding. People also say that because Nathaniel was in Cana of Galilee and from there, that's his hometown, that perhaps he was somehow related and so he invited Jesus. But you got Jesus and you got Mary and nowhere in the book of John is Mary ever called Mary. That's just a Bible trivia thing. He's always called Jesus' mother. The word, the name Mary is not mentioned. Uh, in this relationship. And so they run out of wine. And this is how we know that Mary was in charge of things because she was expected to do something. They ran out of wine and she was expected, uh, the, the, the bridegroom, the head of the feast, everybody of, above her, as it were, were expecting her to fix it. Also, as, a, as an aside, uh, many believe that at this point in time, Mary was a widow, that Joseph had passed away somehow. A lot of people guess that he had been conscripted into the Roman army and been sent to foreign lands and died in a war and a conflict because Mary goes to Jesus Culture would say, if Mary has a problem, she goes to Joseph. She does not. She goes to Jesus. And you say, well, yeah, but Jesus is the Son of God. And Mary isn't too sure about this at this point in time. He's just the eldest son. And so Mary goes to him and says, we are out of wine. Jesus says, woman... Now, some people say, well, that's disrespectful. But, hey, it's not really disrespectful back in that time. The word woman, if you call somebody a woman, you're basically saying ma'am. Now, it's kind of old-fashioned, but it is respectful. Some translations say dear woman. Okay? He doesn't call her mother. We will see that because of what he says. He says, what does this have to do with me? Now, this is an idiom. This is an idiom that goes back to Jewish drama. Literally, it is, what to me and to you. What to me and to you. And it is an idiom that is used between two people if a relationship has changed. Pretend, if you will, that there are two brothers. There are two brothers, and they decide to start a business 
And because one's good with finance, he'll be the CFO. And because one guy's good with administration, he'll be the CEO. And so they make the business thing going, and they start going to work. And the CEO calls the CFO Little Stinker. And the CFO, because they're now in business and they're in the high rise and there are other people around, may say, what to me and to you? In other words, while we're here, while we're playing business, while we have a company, our relationship has changed. We are no longer brothers. We are no longer elder brother and younger brother who beat up on each other. We are working in a business. And so what Jesus is saying to his mother at this point in time, Jesus is saying, our relationship is now changing. We are no longer mother and son. We are now human and Messiah. Sinful human and Messiah. Jesus is saying, I am no longer your son. I am your savior. And she doesn't get all bent out, so she seems to have gotten it. She seems to understand what Jesus is saying, probably confused her, but she accepted it. And so she tells the servants to do whatever he says. Now, the word for servants is not slave and it is not paid servant. These are probably family volunteers that are working the wedding, as happens even today. And there are stone jars that hold 20 to 30 gallons, and there are six of them. Why are they stone? Because they were used for purification. Before a Jew does anything, he's got to wash. Got to wash the hands, got to put water on their head, got to wash the utensils, got to wash, got to wash, got to wash. And you had to have enough water available for these hundred or so people to all wash. Stone is special because if you read through Leviticus in the Old Testament, it cannot become unclean. Clay can become unclean and you got to break it. Wood can become unclean and you got to burn it. Stone, no matter what you do to it, cannot be ceremonially unclean. And so these are for purification. The water that's put in it is pure. And Jesus says, fill them. Fill them to the brim. We're not sure by the language he used if he's telling them to empty them and refill them or just top them off. But there's enough water put in that is up to the top. Uh, 180 gallons of water. Okay? If you do the 30 times the 6. 180 gallons of water... Jesus does not say hocus pocus. He doesn't say nothing up my sleeve. He doesn't say anything. He just says, take a ladle full to the master of the master of ceremonies. And so somebody takes a little container to the master of ceremonies and he tastes it and he says, normally every wedding that I've been to up to this point, you do the good wine first and then when people are a little tipsy, when people are a little in their cups, you know, kind of, I don't care, then the bad wine, because they won't notice it, because they're not paying attention, because they've been partying on this for seven days. And he says, but you have brought the good wine out last at the end. 
And I assure you, the wine is the best wine he ever tasted. The wine was perfect, people say, but it wasn't alcoholic. Sure it was. If it's wine, it's alcoholic. We do not know the percentage. They controlled the proof of the wine back then by adding water. If wine was too strong, they would add water to it and dilute it. They didn't have the fermenting computerized perfection that we have today where somebody can say, ah, it will always be 4% alcohol or something like that. They were more hit and miss, and so they did it by diluting. Whatever the alcohol content of Jesus' wine, it was perfect. It tasted perfect. The Bible never says, don't drink. Okay? Nowhere in the Bible does it say, you are not allowed to drink. Now, Samson was not allowed to drink because he was a Nazarite. Special. Average people. New Testament. You and I. We're allowed to drink, but if we get drunk, it is a sin. It is a sin to give the control of yourself over to alcohol. Okay? And so some people say, uh, like me, I say, I don't drink at all. I don't drink at all because I don't want to slip into that. Okay? But if you drink, hey, it's fine. If you get drunk, it's a sin. And so what's the point of all this? The point of all this is at the end of, of chapter 2, 12. After this, he went down to Copernicus with, uh, let's see, this is the first of his signs. John calls all of his miracles signs because they point to something. Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory. The point of this is that Jesus manifested his glory. What does his glory mean? It says the first signs Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory. If you go back to John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so it says, and his disciples believed in him. In him means what? It means they believed. He was God incarnate. They believed he was the Son of God. They believed he was divine. They believed that he was not uh, just a guy who can do magic tricks. They believed that he was truly God on earth, incarnate. And that is what John is trying to say. Manifested his glory, showed that he was divine. And his disciples believed in him. And it says, after this, he went down to Copernicus with his mothers and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. So people have tried to look at what the molecular content of water is versus wine. They are radically different. I have a glass of water. I have a glass of wine. They are radically chemically different. Jesus changed the chemical and the molecular attributes of the liquid. He created wine out of water. He showed that he has the power over things, over molecules, over uh, liquids of any kind. He just can do Anything with anything. You put something in front of Jesus and he can change it into anything else because he is God and he is God incarnate. And this miracle 
shows his manifest glory that he is God incarnate. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, we, we praise you for this miracle that it shows us that you are in fact God incarnate, that you are truly the Son of God, that you are truly divine. And Lord, we praise you for that and pray that miracles like this will be understood to be signs that you are who you said you are, the Creator God of the universe. We praise you for that and ask your blessing upon this time. We ask this through the blood of Christ. Amen. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 180 Llewellyn Boulevard, San Lorenzo, California. Our Sunday morning service is at 1045 a.m. Our website is livingfreetoday.org and our phone number is 510-278-2622. May God continue to bless you as you serve your King. God bless.